Hey there, if you end up liking this episode of Album Epitaph, you'll probably like the next one as well, so please check it out. Also, please know that we'd love it if you could share or review Album Epitaph wherever you get your podcast. There's, there's no marketing team here, so your support really makes a difference. Okay. Um, thank you. I'm ready. Okay. Let's go. Album Epitaph is produced by the Noise Cancelling Group. This is Album Epitaph, a podcast that dives into the unheralded albums which represent an era, a moment, and explains why it mattered. Well, it all matters. Music matters. And in 1996, when the record industry was fat off the grunge explosion, before the internet revolution when culture was divided into scenes and styles, well, it was a time when everything was up for grabs. On this episode, 1996 and what it means to be a sellout. The bassist becoming the coolest guy in the band, and an in-depth look at what allowed the Canadian music scene to punch above its weight class. All in a world where it was okay to be a white drummer with dreadlocks. And all heard through the sounds of Scenery and Fish. The second album by I, Mother Earth. That's One More Astronaut, the best song and the lead single off of I, Mother Earth's Scenery and Fish. This album is dated in superficial ways for sure. I mean, there's a lot of unfortunate stuff in rock music from 96. Just picture yellow-tinted sunglasses and leather pants. But musically, the album has held up to the test of time better than a lot of other post-grunge albums. And that's mainly because of rhythm and tension. Scenery and Fish is filled with funky rhythms and killer Santana-inspired jams. The album is all about great rhythm. Not simply the extra percussionists and bongo solos and the organ, but rhythm that's felt in the interaction throughout all of the instrumentation. That type of emphasis on rhythm, it's heard in a lot of the best modern music today. I mean, just think about what Tom York does. But in 96, that emphasis on rhythm in rock music, it was just a bit more unusual. The other interesting quality here is the tension between being radio-friendly and the band's hard rock, jam-based roots. All of the songs fight with this tension, and the listener is constantly thinking that the band could have been way bigger if they had just cut the minute-long intro down to 10 seconds, or if they stopped breaking down into hard rock quite so loudly. That tension, it seems to be part of the riff that led to I, Mother Earth's breakup after the album was made. Maybe the singer wanted more rock radio choruses. Maybe the brothers on guitar and drums wanted to go a little further out. But they were both right. Pop chorus? Good. Hard rock on the the verge of being prog rock? Good. That's why you can't really pin a genre or style on this album. Is it grunge or alt-rock, pop rock? Uh, I don't know. Well, it's a lot of those things put together. That tension is what makes Scenery and Fish so much more rewarding than a lot of other post-grunge albums. And you can hear this emphasis on rhythm and the tension in the band, even in the first single. One More Astronaut has got this this long introduction, a big pop chorus, 
and a minute and 30 second long instrumental jam that ends with a hard rock breakdown. But that jam, that, that breakdown, it's the best part of the song. Here, take a listen. This is the type of thing that stands up to the test of time. Without it, the album wouldn't matter today. And one more astronaut, it's not the outlier of the record. It's the heart. There are a lot of great albums out there. Many forgotten. Sometimes, separating an album from the context in which it was released can help you see it in a different light. Sure, a lot of times, that can leave an album feeling dated or lame. But every once in a while, you find an album like Scenery and Fish that surprises in how well it stands up. These albums hang around in unexpected ways, subconsciously influencing new music, and and they can illustrate a moment or an era in history with clarity. I call these albums ghosts. Sometimes things that you think are dead and gone, well, they come back. That's what Album Epitaph is all about. Explaining a moment in history and thinking deeply about an album of that era. We aren't reviewing classic albums here. We, we treat albums as historical artifacts that can help us understand where we're coming from. So often we find that the context, like, like the time, the place, the fashion, the economic condition, whatever, the context an album is released in ends up mattering more than you might expect. And that's a bit counterintuitive. Some might say, I don't know, take Sgt. Pepper's by the Beatles. They'd say it's a great album, whether it was released in 1967 or 2027. Good music is good music, right? Well, not exactly. I think Sgt. Pepper's is best understood in the context of 1967. That album defines a lot of interesting ideas from the era, like how the world's biggest superstars set a template for reinvention, or how far the Beatles pushed the technology of the time breaking a lot of recording studio rules and opening up a lot of doors for all sorts of new music that came years after. You can't separate art from its context. That's why Album Epitaph focuses on forgotten albums, 
because most times, it's not the iconic or the best albums that illustrate an era most usefully. Oftentimes, it's the ghosts that end up telling the story best. Scenery and Fish is one of them. It's been hanging around without many people noticing it. The word album comes from the Latin for white, album, like in the sense of a blank white tablet to be filled. But albo is also connected to the Latin for white apparition, ghosts. That funky bass line. That's the rhythm I was talking about. Okay, more on that later. <laughs> so why doesn't anybody other than beer gut nostalgia dads in Canada listen to Scenery and Fish anymore? <laughs> if it's so good, why don't we talk about it like we talk about Sgt. Pepper's? Well, for one, Sgt. Pepper's is way better. <laughs> Scenery and Fish just isn't in that league. But the more interesting reason why we don't remember Scenery and Fish? It's because of 1996. People certainly remember 96 in different ways. The year is fragmented that way. It's a moment of change in North American culture. You know, we might be living through another moment like that today. For some people, 1996 was a Californian paradise of weirdness with great art and a roaring economy. For others, it was like a Tim Burton version of that paradise. Something awful under the surface. You can see this tension in films and fashion and ideas and certainly in music. Everything was changing quickly and it was hard to keep up. A lot of those changes were good. Some were bad, like the explosion of 24-hour cable news. 1996 was a post-OJ world. His Bronco had supercharged 24-hour cable news as entertainment TV, as a place where real-life action could get you truly emotionally engaged. Fox News and cops and All sorts of other TV found ways to hook people into real-life dramas. In 96, people were gripped by the tragic saga of a beauty pageant girl, or the Menendez brothers' murders. And all of those viewing hours, they could only lead to one conclusion. If you followed those stories intensely, it felt like only a terrible conspiracy at a magnitude to match your emotional investment could be at the center of the story. Only that could justify your heightened state. From OJ to 24-hour cable news to conspiracies, it's, it's all there. And it stems from the exploitation of real-life tragedy for viewership. We should leave those ghosts alone. And that matters here because it seems from a distance that when times are good, people want to consume terrible emotions in their media. Like when things are sunny, we want voyeurism into the dark parts of life. And that is 1996. You can hear it in Scenery and Fish. But the opposite is true, too. That when times are dark, as they are now for many people, we want escapism. We want to get away from the dark. 
We need a break. There's no emotional energy left for melancholy and infinite sadness when you're white-knuckling it through the night. And that might explain some of the weirdness and the darkness of 1996 culture. Take movies, sure, it was Tom Cruise and Will Smith all over the place, but for every one of those summer blockbusters, there was a weird and dark one like Trainspotting, Mars Attacks, or The Cable Guy. Really, The Cable Guy, I know. It's not just Jim Carrey's crazy facial expressions. No, that movie, it's a Shakespearean tragedy of Chip falling to his death impaled by the TV transmitter that raised him. That part of the story is dark, and it's the part of the story that stands up to the test of time. (laughs) Well, you gotta see it if you've uh, got nothing to do one night. And listen to it too. Because the soundtrack to The Cable Guy contains a gem that sounds exactly like 1996. This soundtrack is filled with big 90s names at the tail end of their influence. But this one song is an outlier. A melancholy ballad based on a sample. A blend of hi-fi and lo-fi. Fake lo-fi was like a 90s trope. And a bad band name. A one-hit wonder. It's so mid-90s. been downhearted baby ever since the day we met that's standing outside a broken phone booth with the money in my hand by the primitive radio gods (laughs) even the names here are very 1996 not just the style i mean well isn't scenery and fish by i mother earth a really stupid name too i think so but also how the title would infuriate the suits at the label Can't you just see the guys in the marketing department complaining about how hard it would be to promote a mouthful like standing outside a broken phone booth with the money in my hand? (laughs) That's an example. It's a small example, but an example of sticking it to the man. A long-held value for musicians. The idea that art was in opposition to business and that true artists would sacrifice business to prove artistic worth. Sticking it to the man. (laughs) That's how you became a legend. In 96, 
the worst thing an artist could be called was a sellout. The worst side of that 90s ethos was the cynical, too-cool-for-school attitude that everyone faked. You know, like never showing enthusiasm, always pretending not to care. That just got exhausting for everyone. But this ethos, it's still the central point of tension for Gen Xers today. Out of all the differences between Gen Xers and Millennials, and in reality the differences are pretty minimal, it's probably the sellout issue that's hardest for Gen Xers to understand. In the 90s, bands would find ways to give the finger to big labels or big shots or big politics or big business all the time. Well now, at least to a lot of Gen Xers, it can feel like everyone, somewhere along the way, bent over and sold out. Sometimes it seems like musicians are trying to make music, but only after they get permission from their parents first. Or worse, being outrageous is a calculated show for publicity rather than expressing sincere frustration. It'd be so great to see some kids give the finger to somebody, anybody, and have a reason for it. I mean, have some conviction. Don't ask permission. Have some balls. The band who did that better than any other band in history was, of course, Rage Against the Machine. Today, Rage just seems to be from a totally different planet. The visceral nature of their music was so strong, I... I'm not even sure if people today could handle it. I hope kids today would respond viscerally like the kids of the 90s did, but I fear that they would respond more like how the parents of the 90s did. Shit. That's Zach Della Roca criticizing society by saying, Weapons, not food. Not homes, not shoes. Not need, just feed the war cannibal animal. I walk the corner to the rubble that used to be the library. A lineup to the mind cemetery now. What we don't know keeps the contracts alive and moving. They don't gotta burn books, they just remove them. While arms warehouses fill as quick as the cells, rally around the family. Pocket full of shells. We don't have anything like this right now. And I don't mean to be flippant here. I don't call this out just because I'm an old grumpy guy and I miss the past. It's because I believe the world needs those voices. We need to hear angry ideas that piss off old guys like me. Because, well, there's a lot to be angry about in the world. Zach Della Roca was 22 years old when Rage Against the Machine released their first album. If some kid like that is out there listening, hear this. We need you.
nobody represents this this ethos or the conflict with it better than Kurt Cobain. It's unfair, but but he's become a symbol of that value system in music, and it couldn't be escaped in 1996 or even today. Whether it's with lyrics that had to be real, and the more messed up your own life was, the better people assumed your music was. Or how he literally gave the finger to so many people. Or how he walked the line between being the biggest musician in the world and not selling out, that's really hard to do. Cobain's ghost is everywhere, and it weighed heavy in 1996. A lot of bands chose to escape it. That's partly why 1996 is filled with a staggering diversity of genre and style in music. Scenes. They seem to pop up everywhere. And after baking for a bit in a particular city, they'd explode all over the world. In this era, you could walk down the street and see goths and punks, glitter rave girls with soothers, hemp hippie Tiva bros, skaters, a group of dudes in Doc Martens and three-piece suits with green hair. Even a babe in overalls and steel toes. <laughs> okay, so I just described the fans of Marilyn Manson and Rancid. Aphex Twin, we're listening to Aphex Twin right now. Fish, Sublime, The Mighty Mighty Boston's, and Coolio. All big in 96. If you want a visual, just watch Portlandia. Well, all of these weird scenes and styles, they started somewhere. Like a very particular place. And that's about the last time you can really see that in music. In 96, people were making a big deal about place. Like whether you were from Seattle or Olympia. Or the difference between East Coast rap and West. Like a really big deal. Like they killed each other over it. These identities mattered to people. It was a thing that you would introduce yourself and immediately ask what type of music they listened to. Rap or rock? I guess that's a dumb question, but... But back then, the answer would give you a surprisingly accurate lens to help understand someone. So 96 is a peak of fragmentation of genre and style. Once the internet hits, places blur, and genres and styles become less distinct. But check out how diverse 96 was. Here are some big artists just from the year. In hip-hop and rap, that genre explodes with important albums from DJ Shadow the Fugees, De La Soul, Tribe Called Quest, Outcasts, Wu-Tang. And then Tupac brings rap firmly into the mainstream with California Love that summer. There's also a new wave of indie rock and singer-songwriters led by Beck, Fiona Apple, Sparkle Horse, hundreds of others. Electronic music, say house music coming out of Chicago, techno from Detroit via the UK, drum and bass, trance, trip-hop, all going mainstream after being widely dismissed for years. But now, thinking about it, hugely influential, maybe more than any other genre of the time. Think about Jamiroquois, The Prodigy, Crystal Method, Delirium, Tricky, and the Warp Records acts like Aphex Twin. Those influences can be heard in most modern music today. And then there was metal being taken in one direction by Marilyn Manson, another by Tool, a third by Deftones, and the ska and punk scenes diverging and mixing back together with surf and skate culture led by bands like Real Big Fish, Goldfinger, The Bostones, Sublime, NoFX, and this is just 96. There were a lot of different genres and scenes, and they all existed more independently from each other than music does today. Now sure, there were still the really big commercial acts like Oasis and Smashing Pumpkins, Red Hot Chili Peppers, or No Doubt, but scenes still mattered. 
and the easiest scene to overlook from the era is the jam band. Sure, the Grateful Dead was dead, and the Black Crows could never really pull it together because they couldn't stand each other. But Fish, and especially the Dave Matthews Band, they're probably bigger than you'd expect. I say my hell is the closet I'm stuck inside Can't see the light And my heaven is a nice house in the sky Got central heat day And I'm alright You know this, this quaint funny guy who plays that kind of good kind of weird music to stoned hippie dads? Yeah, this guy. He has sold 35 million albums. That's the same as Bob Dylan. He's played something like 2,000 concerts since 1996, and he makes about 50k per show. Apparently there was a time where DMB was selling $200,000 worth of t-shirts, hats, and stickers a day. That's Michael Jackson money. This funny guy who's dancing around and singing weird and loud, he's worth $300 million. That's the same as Elvis. And jam bands did it in part by using a style that I call the payoff better than anyone. DMB really leaned into the idea of building a song towards a payoff. If you were to graph a Dave Matthews song of the era, it might look like a sine graph, but where each wave's amplitude gets bigger and bigger until it finally reaches a major key harmony. In this kind of song, the listener is pushed to endure minutes of dense sound, all to be rewarded in the end. Dave Matthews built a $300 million net worth using this trick. But what's cool is that it's not just jam bands who mastered the payoff. It was used all over the place in electronic music and in metal. Here, let's take a listen. This is Tool and the title track off the 1996 album, Anemone. This intense musical interlude is in the middle of the title track of the album, five minutes into the song. It's a big ask to get a listener to commit to a song like that, but Tool knows their fans can handle it. This 45 second chunk is dense, filled with percussion, scorching guitars, panning voices. By the way, he's saying, learn to swim in the background, learn to swim. Well, it's all building towards a moment, towards a payoff where if you've invested in the song, if you've been present for five, six, sometimes seven minutes, well, you're going to get rewarded here. Well, here, you've been listening to this thing, so here's the reward, the payoff. I want to 
are important here too because we're seeing a kind of operatic song structure where the lyrics actually call the shots. At first he was saying, learn to swim. And then in that beautiful refrain, I'm praying for rain. And finally, just when you think you might be left in that that rising, beautiful prayer, James Maynard Keenan, one of the great vocalists of the era, well, he punches you back into reality. Time to bring it down again. He finishes in the same angry place he started because he wants his listener to act in real life. This is opera. An opera critiquing consumerism in 1990s California. But opera can only exist on albums like these. There's no place for opera on streaming platforms where if you don't get to the hook in the first 30 seconds, you push skip. And those skips add up. And they prevent you from accessing opera in the future. Crowdsource taste. The payoff is why so many Dave Matthews Band fans are also Tool fans. Sure, they look totally different, but they've both learned to endure the pain for the payoff. You can invest in albums in a lot of ways. By buying an album or or a ticket, or by reading and thinking, or sometimes just by listening and being disciplined and caring. Have you ever met a metal or a jam band fan and noticed a bit of pretension there? Yeah, it's there because they earned it. This is used to be all right, man. I really like this groove. In the end, though, all of these scenes and genres are still minor compared to the post-grunge void. Grunge music had died young and hard in 1994. But that was after fueling a dramatic phase of growth and change in the music industry. The record sales from the early 90s are legendary, and an entirely new radio format had emerged separate from the classic rockers' catalog. More than that, MTV and the music video were now primary in a band's success. For the first time, a band's videos might have been more important than their live show. There were also more recording studios, photographers, live venues, promoters, managers, and record stores than ever before. A hungry music industry machine had been created, and money and recording contracts were being splashed around all over the place, all trying to find something new to feed that machine, to fill the void. Critics and hardcore fans, especially if they had been there every step of the way with Sub Pop and bands like Mud Honey or Sonic Youth in the late 80s, well, they violently pushed back against anything that was put into this void. Even Eddie Vedder effectively sabotaged Pearl Jam to get away from the word grunge, to hold on to some cred, to get some control over things. Many good bands, 
like I, Mother Earth, they walked into an impossible situation. They were two years too late. What is funny is that the audiences were there, buying tickets and albums. The music was sometimes good, and certainly the business model was clamoring for more product. But being lumped in post-grunge meant that you would never be respected, even if you deserved it. There would be no indie cred for these guys, because they jumped straight into multi-record deals with the major labels. I mean, I Mother Earth literally had four suits show up from the major labels to a show in Toronto and offer them deals on the spot. They went with capital, EMI. But think of Stone Temple Pilots, or Bush, Silverchair, Candlebox. There's a lot of them. They all fit the bill. And they were all dismissed by critics. I actually think that Bush's Razorblade suitcase is awesome. Admittedly, a lot of terrible derivative music was made during this era, but there was also some good music, and it was washed away in the high-tide industry. It's 25 years later, and these reputations still resonate. Today, it's cool to like Beatles-esque Nirvana, but totally uncool to like this. I think that's one of the iconic songs of the 90s. Maybe I'm uncool. But then again, Kmart had a kid's clothing line in the 90s, so teens could spend 75 bucks for the Eddie Vedder look, so what the fuck? Lightning Crashes is good. So this is the environment, the context of popular music in North America in 1996. The era is filled with scenes and styles, all of them seemingly up for grabs. But no element was more significant in music than the post-grunge void. Scenery and fish sank right into this void. But I'm not ready to give up the ghost. So we need to do a deep dive into scenery and fish and figure out why it really matters. To see what it can tell us about music of the era. And we can do so right after this. Album Epitaph is still building some momentum and Our first season has eight episodes ready to go, but we could use some help reaching fans of music history. If you can think of someone you know who might be interested in this podcast, we would really appreciate it if you could share Album Epitaph with them. And it really does make a difference if we get some nice reviews, so please subscribe and review if you like the show. And email us anytime, info at albumepitaph.com. We'd love to hear from you. I like email, but I miss the postman. 
So let's go a bit deeper into scenery and fish now and figure out exactly what the heck we're talking about here. We've looked at the context of the album and of the music scene it came from, but we can also look more specifically at I, Mother Earth and the album's songwriting, performance, and sonic qualities. I mean, it opens up with a weird one. So this is Hello Dave. And right away we're hit with the the jam-based percussion section and there's going to be an organ player coming up. This track introduces this vibe to the band's existing fans, prepping them for a sound that's very different than grunge rock. I mean, Nirvana never had bongos. And this, it really isn't a song at all, but it is a statement. An overture for the album in some ways. Its existence illustrates an important point, I think. The band viewed Scenery and Fish as one complete artistic work. Not a collection of songs, but a thing that people would listen to front to back. That's why it's got this introduction. But okay, you won't listen to that ever again. That's fine. Let's hear something else. So we heard this earlier, like a girl, but it's worth a closer look. We get going with these very rock radio friendly guitar chords, just pieces of G's and A's really, but something stands out here. Check the funky bass line. It's hard not to think of Flea when you hear that, but, but slappy funk bass was all over the place in the 90s. <laughs> I dig it. So I've got a theory, that each decade has a different coolest guy in the band. For sure in the 70s it was the guitarist, I mean, hands down. In the 80s, the singer. But in the 90s, well, I think it was the bassist who was the coolest guy in the band. Bruce Gordon is playing here, and he can rip. Also got that funky guitar riff, too. Today, it's probably the drummer who's the coolest guy in the band, but, but maybe that's waning a bit. Maybe the guitar will have a comeback in the 2020s. Well, that might be a stretch, but I figure that as long as live performance matters, the guitar will be there. One More Astronaut is the song after this. That lead single we talked about earlier? It's the best song in the album, and even though it's a hit, it still has this killer hard rock breakdown and great rhythm, tons of tension. But let's skip it. We'll go direct to track four, Another Sunday. The tension in the band is is best represented here on this second single. You see, right after the album was released, Edwin, the singer, left the band. My Mother Earth went on to release a few more albums with a different singer and went further out with their sound, but Ed, he went the opposite direction. He tried to break it solo in America with a new radio-friendly sound, a sound I call cool mum rock. I think you can hear the tension in the band in this song, between the radio-friendly riff and then the hard rock breakdown that's uh, coming up in about a minute. 
But the more interesting conflict in the band was about writing credits. <laughs> it's hard to imagine today how important writing credits were in this era. Musicians just weren't respected as much if they didn't write their own material. It didn't matter how good they could sing. Authenticity demonstrated with writing credits. That's what really mattered. I Mother Earth's core are the brothers Jag Tana, guitarist, producer, and Christian Tana, drummer, and the lyricist. They're the center of the band as songwriters and in the studio, dominating the sound of the band and squeezing Ed out of the creative process. Just before Ed left I Mother Earth, he said something about having no creative control, and therefore having no reason to be in the band. But man, looking back, so much drama over who wrote what. I can't decide if it's silly or if that individual vision in songwriting is missing in modern music. I don't know. And that's partly because so much modern music today is crowdsourced and ghostwritten. I just don't think people care like that anymore. The other problem for Ed is that he just looked too good. I mean, he looks like a combination of Patrick Swayze and Eddie Vedder. It's just too much. And truthfully, his vocals don't sound nearly as good as he looked, and that's deadly for a singer. Here's a good example of that breakdown I keep mentioning. Those guys always built their songs to something like this, and it's the only part of the song that tends to hold up. I think the next song is a lot more interesting though. So let's give that a shot. Three days old. This is much more of a Jag Tana song. It's all over the place. Quiet and smooth, loud and jarring. It's even got this weird spaghetti western guitar riff in there. It's the type of song most people will like part of, but many people won't like the whole thing. The arrangement, the sonic qualities, they're just all over the place. But it's also a, a good representation of Jag's guitar sounds. It's a guitar-centered song, and it really shows off what a killer player Jag is, and how he can create interesting atmospherics by panning and layering guitars and tones. He's a guitar player's player. Here, check it out. So we're, we're not really talking about how Jag can fly all over blues scales. He, he can do that, but not that type of guitar playing. If you're someone who's experimented with different guitar effects or amp combos, he's just a really interesting guitarist. 
even Jeg's gear is unusual. He plays this this weird strat style guitar with left-handed neck through a nailer amp. Especially for this time, not using a Marshall or a Fender amp would have been just weird. Who knows what kind of pedals he's using? I mean, certainly a lot more interesting than tube screamers or a fuzzbox. He's got an impressive range of guitar sounds. Very different than the typical power chord plus distortion sound that people associate with the era. I think that shows in his production here too. Jag produced this album along with Paul Norfield. Norfield's the guy behind most of Rush's albums. And Jag had worked closely with Mike Klink on their previous album. Klink's the famous guy for that LA sound, you know, big rock like Guns N' Roses. Jag also name checks the groovy Mackie recording console in the album credits. He later opens up his own studio and produces records. He won a Juno for best recording engineer. So yeah, I, I think it's clear that Jag is really involved in the sonic qualities of this album. Yeah, a Juno. Come on, that's a big Canadian award. It's a big deal. And then comes a rain of all thoughts that always have to wreck my high and bring me down. Bring me down. Three Days Old also has that lyric on the album. The best lyric. And then comes a rain of old thoughts that always have to wreck my high and bring me down. This album has fine lyrics, I guess. At their worst, they're simply designed to seem profound when they aren't. But there are a few good lines here. Then comes a rain of old thoughts? Yeah, that holds up. That's good. Used to be all right. It opens with this really nice groove, and immediately with those three guitar parts, it just becomes everybody's favorite song on the album. The thing is, though, that that mellow groove, it's not really something I Mother Earth could ever really stick with. They were a tight live band, and they just wanted to go. They recorded songs with this in mind. Used to be all right is a single, their third, and it's over six minutes long. It goes all over the place, and. Even the lyrics here show that it was crafted from a live performance standpoint. Let's race ahead a little bit here and check out the lyrics. Three minutes into the song, he starts talking about the crowd. There's a rage in the crowd. I'm a face in the crowd, face in the crowd, face in the crowd. These guys are thinking about how this is going to play out in a sweaty club in Brampton. It's for the crowd. You had to be there. And this is where I, Mother Earth begins to go again. They can't stay in that pocket groove. It's just not in their nature. You know, bands today often write music in the studio and try to adapt those songs to work on the road if the label thinks there's a demand. But music from this era and and before was often the opposite. 
typically the best music was road tested and designed to be there for the live performance, later being adapted to the studio. And that's what we're hearing now. Because of this, and, and because the band is a tight group of skilled musicians who know how to play with each other, it always feels like there's another gear for I Mother Earth to get to. They could always kick it up another notch. Here, and throughout the rest of the album, it seems like this band couldn't resist using this ability. That would work really well on the road, but adapting it to the studio singles, well, it would have been a challenge. And that's how you end up with a six-minute single. You can see this in the song's lengths throughout the album. Nine of the 12 songs are over five minutes long, and, and some a few minutes longer than that. These guys wrote songs that pushed the radio format beyond the three-minute and 30-second song structure. To give you an idea, Nirvana's Nevermind has the same number of songs, but is about 21 minutes shorter. Now, I don't mean to suggest that the longer the album, the better. That, that's not true at all. But I think it illustrates just how much farther out these guys could go compared to their peers. The contrast is even more striking today. You know, since streaming has really taken off, songs have gotten dramatically shorter, and the hooks are pushed up into the first few seconds of the song. There's an incentive to keep songs short if you're paid more when the entire song is listened to. So on average, popular songs are about 30 seconds shorter today than they were in the 90s. That's a lot. Like 15 or 20%. I guess we don't have the attention span we used to. Or maybe some new tech is reducing our ability to pay attention, shaping our art without us realizing it. So far, Scenery and Fish has had a lot of the hits loaded into the first half of the album. That's pretty typical in the CD era. The back half of the CD is often where you'll hear the songs that go a little further out, or where you'll find that heartbreaking ballad. We'll see in a later episode of Album Epitaph how vinyl has a different formula, a corners formula. But this song, Shortcut to Moncton, it feels like the transition to the back half of this album. This is a dense song with a lot of different sections. It's got all the stuff we've heard so far on Scenery and Fish, but it just takes it to a different level. You know, it's eight minutes long with this kind of expansive, sort of spacey interlude, and it whispers and it wails, and it's got that great opener. If you're looking for a song that goes far beyond post-grunge, well, this is a good place to start. If you're going to give Scenery and Fish a real shock, I suggest you start with One More Astronaut, and shortcut to Moncton. And you know, coming back to this song, it's refreshing to hear a band take eight minutes to stretch it out. It lets the listener sink in and relax and zone out. It helps you clean up all those thoughts that have been kicking around your head. Yeah, it's a therapy.
but it's these next two songs on the album that just don't hold up to the test of time. This is Pisser, and unfortunately, it's it's just too close to the stereotypical sound of 90s alternative rock. And Raspberry, the song that follows, well, it's just too close to a standard rock radio hit. They're both forgettable, even though Raspberry was a, another single and a hit. It also doesn't help that Raspberry's music video is just so cringeworthy. Swinging retro mics, pleather shirts, frosted tips, yellow tinted sunglasses, nose piercings, bowling shirts. Oh my god. Also, the whole video takes place in a men's room? Yikes. I guess these were both hits, though. Ah, let's move on. Every song has got a big introduction. Everyone. It's these last three songs of the album that really kick ass. The songs are just too much to be singles, but they are awesome album tracks. They are good examples of the type of music that you can only really experience by listening to full albums. At this point in Scenery and Fish, it really seems like the guys had just decided to go wherever their jams would take them. And that's rad. There isn't much jam-based hard rock out there right now. Songburst in Delirium here? Well, it has more of a hard rock edge to it. And while that's a great part of what I Mother Earth can do, the song does highlight the only shortcoming the band has musically. Really thin vocals. Ed's voice... It can handle a higher register, and he often sounds good, but he just doesn't have the meat on the bone that's needed in a song like this. He can hide behind this kind of fake gravelly tone, but still, there's a lack of depth, and it makes the whole song come up short. I wonder what a remaster or remix could sound like. Bob Ludwig mastered the album, and he obviously would have understood this, so I'm unsure there's anything that could really come out of it. But Ed just sounds too much like Billy Corgan when Billy Corgan is at his most annoying. On that note, we should mention the loudness wars of the 90s here too. We'll be spending more time on recording technology in a future episode of Album Epitaph, but understanding compression is important to understanding the era in music. Because by the time you get to Sense of Henry, the song that follows this, the album starts to get fatiguing for the listener. The reason is the so-called loudness wars. In short, Music of this era was compressed in volume so that each instrument could be mixed to a max volume. It's not a dynamic sound with very quiet quiets and more stunning louds. It's the opposite. Every part of the album has been squashed to be roughly the same level and then jacked up to 11. Compression like this was done most famously when music went digital with the CDs of the 90s. They did it to get everyone's attention, to sound loud on bad speakers. It became a kind of arms race for loudness. But the cost of this compression is that the music is less interesting, and you get tired as a listener. All the sounds keep hitting your ears in the same spot. That's why I'd love to hear this album remixed. Earth, Sky, and see. The album wraps up with this insane jam song 
that would put a crowd and a band into a frenzy. It's been a special one for them and their fans on the road. Live and for the musicians, kind of cathartic trance. If it could be pulled off. The whole thing is very Santana. Really. Like, Santana is all over the place on this album. I can't believe I'm just mentioning it now. First, the C in the title. Well, that's short for Carlos. And second, Jag and Christian Tana. Those are stage names. Tana is short for Santana. Also, the album credits end with this message in Spanish. Carlos, thank you for being our favorite fish. Which is either a hilarious translation screw up, or maybe the fish is some sort of metaphor for the band trying to catch the magic of Santana in the 70s. I don't know. But these guys, they are serious Santana nuts. I'm I'm so stoked right now because I'm now inspired to get into Santana to listen to a few of his albums. I mean, in truth, I've never really given him a shot, and I'm due. Great albums always inspire listening to other great albums. So what looks like a regular alt-rock radio album on the surface ends up a fuller and, and more interesting album than expected. Scenery and Fish rewards deeper listening. Sure, there are unfortunate 90s tropes throughout the album, and it's not a masterpiece by any means. But it's better than a lot of music that was plunged into that grunge radio void. 25 years later, it's really surprising to see how well the album has stood up to the test of time. You know, Jag was being honest when, in 96, he said, It's just about your reasons for making music and keeping to that level without necessarily becoming all rich and famous. We're more interested in releasing albums over a period of years. I hate singles. You know, he walked the walk. A lot of people like to think that music or art is created independently from economics or politics or social conditions. Artists are inspired regardless of what's going on outside of their bedroom, right? Well, I think that's wrong. I think that conditions can be created that repress or encourage the creation of great art. The explosion of Canadian music in the 1990s with bands like I Mother Earth, well, it's a perfect example. It's a direct result of something called the CanCon laws, laws that were very controversial in Canada. CanCon is this episode of Album Epitaph's Big Idea, and it's coming up right after this. So it turns out that there are a lot of really smart music minds listening out there. Thank you. The feedback we've gotten has been really great, so really thanks. We're collecting all of the best ideas and the criticism for a final errors and omissions episode, which we will release at the end of this season. So if you have any burning thoughts, 
please email us and we'll get back to you. Info at albumepitaph.com. Okay, cheers. where to go and complain if you hear a DJ swear on the radio? At least in Canada, do you know where to go? <laughs> okay, well, first, I know you probably wouldn't care about swearing, and second, there really aren't any DJs left to play the music they want to play, or say the things they want to say. But in another time, you could go to the CRTC. And I don't mean to make the CRT sound trite. Uh, they do handle heavy issues like advertiser truthfulness or the difference between criticism and defamation. But they also police something called the Canadian Content Laws, or CanCon. America has never had any laws like it, and CanCon has been sharply criticized in Canada for decades. But to understand scenery and fish, and the explosion of other great Canadian music in the 1990s, you have to start with CanCon, 1971. The radio mattered in the 1970s. And in Canada, the only music being played on the radio were the popular British and American bands, like the Stones or the Eagles. Sure, there were a few exceptions, Gordon Lightfoot, Neil Young, but, but really, for the most part, everything on Canadian radio was from somewhere else. Not only that, but at the time there was no substantial Canadian music industry, no world-class recording studios or labels. Canada was a cover band country. So a set of laws was enacted in 1971 that were designed to change that. They basically mandated that 30% of the songs on the radio had to be Canadian-made. The formula about writing credits and where it was performed or recorded gets a little convoluted, but you get the point. A law stating that a percentage of things broadcasted in Canada had to be Canadian. It was a long-term idea designed to kickstart the Canadian music industry. But when you're driving home from work on a hot day in your Plymouth Barracuda, and you just want to hear the new Led Zeppelin album, and they keep playing the Guess Who? <laughs> Let's just say that people completely fucking hated it. The early days were the roughest because, frankly, there just weren't that many good Canadian acts. And by the 1980s, it felt like it was all lover boy all the time. A lot of these bands were trying to do big, American-style arena rock, and CanCon was giving them endless airplay. For a time, no one in the world was doing arena rock bigger than the Canadian, Brian Adams. And so that's why he became a poster boy for the law. But what's ironic is that Adams would become a vocal critic of CanCon just as he benefited from it. That ended up raising a lot of questions. For one, Adams had moved far away from his North Vancouver home and set up shop in Britain. Not only did he write and record and perform overseas, he mainly co-wrote his songs with the South African, Mutt Lang. You know, Mutt Lang, the guy who was later responsible for this. So, just how Canadian was the music? And did the law do any good if the poster boy for them had moved out of the country? The main criticism of CanCon is that it propped up bands that sucked. That it promoted mediocrity. And that's a common refrain in Canada about a lot of things. There's a tension in Canada that's just not felt in America. What's more desirable? One horse winning the race or five horses placing in the top ten? Canadians deal with that question all of the time. 
Adam said that CanCon was a hugely mediocre system, that it should be abolished. And I, I just love that oxymoron, hugely mediocre, because ironically, I can't think of a more hugely mediocre artist than Brian Adams. That's all you need. Okay, to be fair, the first phase of CanCon was pretty bad. But the second phase, say from 1985 to 1995, well, that was far more interesting. By then, a real Canadian music industry had started to form, benefiting from the groundwork laid 15 years earlier. Think about influential musicians like the punk band DOA, or Grapes of Wrath, Skydiggers, the Rio Statics, 5440, Blue Rodeo. A wave of much more interesting bands emerged from this new industry, and they took advantage of the new infrastructure, of the managers, studios, clubs, the market, and and just generally the first self-sufficient Canadian music industry. It's more than that, though. The new scene was, refreshingly, not mainstream. Those bands, they are all decidedly not American rock. And that's not to say that the music was better, but it was different. It didn't care to make it big in the States. For the first time, Canada was enough. Here's a great example. A song that's almost anti-mainstream. Peaceful but unsettling. Ghostly. So far removed from Los Angeles. What do you think? Peaceful or unsettling? Here are the lyrics. Waiting for Jimmy down in the alley. Waiting there for him to come back home. Waiting down in the corner. Thinking of ways to get back home. Sweet Jane. Well, I think it's beautiful. And I also think that in the end, we are all just trying to find a way back home. This, of course, is Cowboy Junkies. I even love the band name. Even though it doesn't sound like it, there's a direct line between Cowboy Junkies and I, Mother Earth. Those bands that pioneered the Canadian music scene in the late 80s, well, they set the stage for the 90s. And it's not a coincidence that there was an explosion of successful Canadian acts in the mid-90s. The list is massive. Our Lady Peace, Moist, Matt Good, The Odds, Rusty, Big Wreck, Big Sugar, The Watchmen, Widemouth Mason, Tea Party, Crash Test Dummies, Headstones, Trouble Charger, Hayden, Limblifter, and then the huge ones like Celine Dion and Sarah McLaughlin, Alanis Morissette, Shania Twain, The Bare Naked Ladies, And of course, the most important Canadian band, the Tragically Hip. 
we are talking about hundreds of millions of albums sold, all coming out of just a couple of different Canadian cities. Regardless of how fair the criticism of CanCon was in the 70s and 80s, you can't argue with the results. But the media world has obviously changed, and the future of CanCon is not looking bright. It's difficult to see how CanCon is necessary anymore. Should Netflix have a mandatory Canadian content percentage? Spotify? Internet radio? Super Bowl commercials? Things have changed. Maybe it's time for CanCon to just call it mission complete. But what I know is that economic, political, and social conditions like these, well, they can be created and managed in ways that help support the creation of great music. And music matters. Remember, when we hear those funky bass lines of I, Mother Earth, when we see those swinging retro mics, if we space out during a Santana-inspired bongo solo, well, in a lot of ways, we're hearing the cowboy junkies. Or the tragically hip. Maybe it's true what they say, that the album is dead, that it was never needed anyway, that we were all sick of buying $20 CDs just to listen to two good songs. But I don't believe it. Sure, some albums, they just don't hold up and that's okay. But others? Others still have surprises. They stand up to the test of time, still able to energize you decades later. They remain influential no matter how far removed they seem. They help illustrate a moment in our history, and they can help us explain where we're coming from. And you know, those two good songs, sometimes they ended up being a gateway for us to expand our musical tastes, helping us learn to love things like the big payoff, the jam. So yeah, I'm invested. And if you want to invest in something that matters, Check out Scenery and Fish on Discogs.com. I saw it there for like $3.60, so no excuses. And maybe they've got a Primitive Radio God CD there. Or a Tragically Hip record. You might also check out McCartney 2 from 1980, listen to the world's biggest musician, experiment with the earliest synths and other electronics. McCartney 2 is the basis of the next episode of Album Epitaph. And just like Springsteen said, everything dies, baby, that's a fact. But maybe everything that dies, someday comes back. Well, that was Album Epitaph, and thanks for listening to it. Album Epitaph is produced by the Noise Cancelling Group and created by me, Zach Matthews, with support from Lane Makovich, Mike Jones, Aaron Matthews, Slavko Busevel, and, and many others. We've got a website now, and we hope you check it out. If you like this episode, please subscribe and review online. It's the only way we can keep this going. See you next time. In the gourd we trust.